Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. few verses later than where we were last week. Mark chapter 1 verses 35 through 45 is what we're reading. Our focus is verses 40 through 45. So since last week a lot has happened, and I mean last week in scripture, and not since my, life, my last week. Lots happened, but that's not part of the sermon. Uh, since the wilderness temptation, uh, we've had now John the Baptist arrested Remember, we ended in verse 13, and we're picking up in verse 35. That's not a lot of verses. Remember, Cliff's notes Jesus. Mark is just writing the bare minimum. John the Baptist has been arrested. It's just mentioned in passing after John the Baptist was arrested. Wait, he was arrested? Tell me that story. Well, he doesn't, at least not here. Uh, He's been arrested. Jesus has gone back to Galilee to preach. He was down toward Jerusalem, probably in Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem, Jericho, really, down the Jordan River uh, when he was baptized by John. He's gone back up to Galilee. Galilee is like due north of Jerusalem, about uh, 50 miles or so. Uh, he's gone there to preach while in Galilee he has called Andrew, Simon, James, and John uh, to be the first disciples. He's taught in the synagogues there in Capernaum and they're just amazed because he teaches with authority. Uh, he surprises everybody. This is not like what we're used to. Our local uh, preachers don't preach like this guy. He's so much better. Um, he drove out a demon uh, while he was there uh, and told the demon to hush. Uh, and, the, and the demon did, which kind of threw everybody to. Uh, he healed Simon's mother-in-law at their house and uh, a whole bunch of other people. And that's, that's where we get today. Uh, that's, that's what has gone on. We don't know how much time transpired, but enough to do all that and then some between that day and where we're picking up uh, in Scripture. Where we're picking up in Scripture is our big idea. We'll start with that this morning. Oh, actually, I think I've got my... Did I get ahead of myself? Yeah, we got the memory verse first. That's right. Uh, Our memory verse this quarter, say it with me, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Mark 8, 34, and 35. It's weird, y'all. I knew the way you were looking at me, something was wrong. I mean, y'all weren't making faces at me or anything, but it just felt like, what's, this is, the rhythm's off here, what's up? And, and I don't know if y'all knew, hey, we haven't done the memory verse, if y'all knew that was next, or if we just collectively knew, this isn't exactly right, what's wrong with, that's what it was, I'd gotten ahead of myself in my notes, I scrolled too far down. So, I'm not going to repeat all that I said about the, the, the days between our passages, but that's what brings us to this morning, and brings us now to our big idea for today. Regardless of how far away from God or how deep in filth and sin you are, Jesus will meet you there to cleanse you and forgive you. The title of the message this morning is Jesus in the Filth. And and that is a very specific title for a very specific part of the verse. Again, it's 
It's, it's a lot of, uh, there, 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 there are very few words for a lot of things going on. Even in the few verses we're going to focus on this morning, 40 through 45, there's a lot going on. And we're going to talk about that when we get to it. Uh, but let's read together verses 35 through 45. Uh, reading those passages, the, the, the first few verses will give us that run and start into verse 40. Mark 1, 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, made his way to the wilderness, some of your translations may say. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages, uh, villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in the deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. We're going to look at two big points this morning. We're going to look at what we see and what we learn. And that kind of goes along with the, the issue of the fact that there's more here going on, there, there, there's a lot more action than there are words describing it. Tends to be the case with narrative. Narrative is always a difficult, a more difficult passage to preach. Um, as I've probably said before, Paul, the letters are easy. Do this, don't do this. Act this way, have it this way, teach it this way. This is what you should know, and this is what you shouldn't believe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's, so it just kind of flows as a, as a teaching lesson. Narrative is more difficult. You've got to figure out, well, why? You've got to start at the beginning. Why is Mark recording this particular action, and in our case, in this particular order? Well, just remember some things as we move through this. Remember that uh, these are Peter's sermons and remembrances. So uh, possibly what happened is as Peter preached somewhere, Mark makes notes, he writes it down later on. He says, so Peter, when you said this, what, was, what were you talking about there? Oh, we were doing this. And so was that right? Yeah. And so he's got this collection of sermons. And, and you have to wonder, we don't know because he doesn't divide it. And then Peter preached this sermon about whatever. What were the sermons like? I mean, what, what was he, as he told these stories, as he, as he shared the gospel, shared who Jesus was, and, and, and what was this sermon like? What did he add? What, what commentary, what examples did he use? What, what other passages did he bring in that Mark, remember Mark is not copying the sermons. He's getting the information about Jesus, about the gospel from the sermons and recording that. So as a preacher, I just wonder, what in the world did that sermon sound like? 
Well, verses 35 through 39 set up our, our message this morning. Um, he, verse 36, we, we know this is from Peter's perspective. Verse 36, Mark says, Simon and the others. So he, he's kind of given us a clue here that he's building off of what Simon Peter says. What's interesting about this passage is there's an overall tone of anger and exasperation. And, and we miss it in translation, uh, if, if we're not careful with translation. Some of your footnotes clear it up for you, or, or at least give you the alternatives. We're going to talk about it when we get there, but in verse, uh, verses 35 through 39, we begin to see it. Um, and, and we see it all the way in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, and Jesus was angry. And that's not the only time Jesus is angry. It's coming later, too. But we see it here. Jesus gets away to pray. Uh, there are only three times in Mark where it's mentioned Jesus gets away to pray. Here, after the feeding of the 5,000, and in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. All big-time events, things that he is either preparing for or recovering from, really. Um, and now he is preparing for chapter 2, which is going to be um, confrontation after confrontation with the Pharisees, leading up to, in chapter 3, them, at the end of chapter 3, I believe, them deciding, okay, we're going to have to kill him. I mean, Mark, early on, we know what's coming. But this, this tone of anger and exasperation actually begins with the disciples. Simon and the others, uh, Scripture says, your translation may say, um, went out and, and searched for him. That's a little, little calm. The, the phrase that's used is hunted, tracked him down. There's, there's this idea of where is he? And then you get to when they, they find him, they say, again, a little toned down coming to English, they say, everyone is looking for you. But, you know, it, it's hard to get, it, it's why social media is so bad. It's hard to get tone in writing. What they're saying is, what are you doing here when you should be performing for the crowds? The crowds are looking at you, looking for you. The crowds are why you're here, right? They're looking for you, and you're out here in the middle of nowhere. You've been gone all morning, and we've been hunting you. couldn't find you. What are you doing, Jesus? That's the tone. Again, we, we miss it in English. Greek, it shows up better, and, and, and it's, it just doesn't translate very well. So he tells them in, uh, in verse 38... Uh, let's go to the neighboring villages. They've been in Capernaum. Let's go to the neighboring villages in Galilee, one of which might have been Nazareth because it's in Galilee, uh, and, and preach because that's what I'm here for. Healing was not his purpose. Jesus didn't come to heal people. Jesus came to preach the kingdom, and that's what he tells the disciples. That's what we need to do. Healing was proof of his preaching, Casting out demons was proof of his power over hell uh, and, and proof that he could forgive, as we're going to see in chapter 2. It was proof of his compassion, of his love for people. But that wasn't why he was here. To my knowledge, he never sought out healing. I tried to think of some time where Jesus announced and put up flyers for a healing service, and I couldn't come up with one. He went to teach, and the crowds came to be healed. And very often, he would get away from them because they're just here for the tricks I perform. Let's go on somewhere else. 
And, but he never turned people down when they came to heal, to be healed, and came for healing. So, when we get to verse 40, uh, at this point, he has been preaching all over Galilee for who knows long, uh, how long. He went to Galilee um, and was there for a while, and uh, then he went to all of Galilee, so it took some time to get around there. And then this man shows up. So now we begin with the what we see. Just purely what is Scripture telling us here, beginning in in verse 40. Well, first, we see the scourge of leprosy. Uh, Leprosy was a big deal. Leprosy was probably the biggest deal uh, in in ancient times. Um, Leprosy meant a life of isolation, uh, depending on how bad it was, a life of pain, you, you had to move out of the city. You, you had to live in a colony of lepers. Now, leprosy covered any and all skin diseases. Today, we call actual leprosy Hansen's disease, which would be the, the purest form of leprosy. But they called, if you got ringworm, that was less leprosy. Uh, I mean, if you got poison ivy, that was leprosy as far as they were concerned. Any skin to condition would be called leprosy. And then they had, if you read your, did your readings this week, you read Leviticus 13 and 14 that talked about what it, how the priests decided what was uh, contagious and what wasn't and, and what you had to do. And you read about what would happen if you were healed of leprosy. And of course, things like uh, poison ivy, plenty of skin diseases, you get them, you, you put some even basic uh, treatments on them, they go away. And when they do, the priest looks at you and says, all right, you're clean, now go do these things in order to be ceremonially, ceremonially clean, because that was the deal. They didn't want to spread infection, and you were ceremoni- ceremonially unclean. And really, that was the biggest deal, was the ceremonially unclean part that they were so concerned about. But it was hopeless, because other than those home remedies that might, might help an itchy spot, true leprosy especially was incurable. Most skin diseases were incurable. So if you got one, you were, you were pretty much done. You were as good as dead. Go back and uh, if you read, I believe it was in 2 Kings, where um, Naaman, who was the, the general for the Assyrian king, let me see if I get all these uh, details right, when he was asked to, uh, about being healed, asked to go to Israel so he could be healed, They went to the Israelite king and he said, Am I God that I can grant life? Because if you're leprous, well, you're dead, dude. You're done. I mean, as far as we're concerned, you can't come around. We're never going to see you again um, unless it's from a distance. And as you yell, unclean, unclean, so we don't get too close to you. So it was a hopeless life, it was a painful life, it was a, an, uh, an isolated, lonely life, and everybody judged you, because if you had leprosy, you probably committed some sin to get it. As a matter of fact, that was what they, cons- what they assumed about any hardship in life, but especially leprosy. What in the world did you do? And that was not totally out of the realm of possibility. You go and read about um, Miriam 
when she was, uh, Moses's sister, when she was arguing with Moses. Well, her punishment, you're going to be leprous for a little while. I think it was seven days, live outside the colony until you learn your lesson, then you can come back. So uh, that wasn't, that was part of their history. So it was a scourge. Well, then we see this man come up and say, if you are willing, you can. And we see Jesus' willingness to heal. Now, we don't know what the man knew. He, he comes to him, begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How did he know that? Well, maybe uh, he, he had heard rumors. Uh, obviously, he lived in Galilee and Ga- and. And Jesus had been preaching all over in the various villages, so word spreads, as we see at the end of this passage. Maybe he heard rumors, maybe he had seen some of the miracles, he had watched Jesus do it. What we also don't know is his views of Jesus. Who did he think this man was? There were miracle workers, just like we have them today, that would walk around healing people, healing people, um... They were tricks, or they knew something about the disease that everybody else didn't know, so it was, oh, wow, they could do that. Oh, no, he just, he just knew that, you know, Neosporin worked to heal a cut. It had nothing to do with his ability, you know, whatever it was at the time, whatever the Neosporin was. What did he know? It didn't, it didn't matter. What he uh, did knew, know, what he knew he knew, was that Jesus could do the impossible, And the impossible in his case was to heal him of leprosy, to give him his life back. And the only time somebody had been healed of leprosy that God didn't directly give them, like Miriam, was this uh, general uh, Naaman in the Old Testament. The only time somebody had been healed of leprosy, I believe. Fact check me on that and make sure I'm right. So we see Jesus' willingness to heal. But in this conversation between the two of them, remember I said there's uh, exasperation and, and indignation? We see a description of Jesus. Verse 41 begins with, Moved with compassion. How many of you have a footnote in your Bible about that word? Compassion. Raise your hand while I drink water. That's disappointing. I got a little footnote. Yep. Um, There are six manuscripts, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's good to know how we get our English Bible. I've talked about it before, but I'm sure most of you have forgotten because I forget it. So what happens is way back when, before Johann Gutenberg in 15-oh-something, 15-teens, before he invented the printing press, every copy of everything in the world that was written down was hand-copied. And when you hand-copy, things happen. You start, you're writing along and you're copying, and, and what you look at, what you're looking at or what you're copying from, your eyes move too far down and you skip a line and you don't realize it. And if you're just copying, you're probably not thinking about what you're writing that much. You're just a copyist. So maybe you skip a line. Maybe you repeat a line. 
because you looked away, what did you say? Oh, okay, and you go back, all right, that's, and, you, and you write that line again. Maybe you can't read the last person's handwriting. Maybe that copy got smudged. Maybe a lot of things happen when you're hand copying. Now, as Baptists, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, as Southern Baptists, as, as me. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe this is inerrant. Oh, but let me back up. I believe we have good translations, but I believe that the originals are inerrant. The original Greek, the original Hebrew, they are without error. I know that translating from one language to another, stuff gets lost. There's a whole phrase about that, lost in translation. You can't translate directly and get everything exactly right. How do you translate, as an example, cat got your tongue to another language? Do I have a Spanish speaker in here? Is Miss Francis in here? How would you directly translate cat got your tongue to, cat got your tongue to Spanish? El gato tiene su... I don't even know what tongue is. Lingua. Makes no sense in Spanish, does it? unless you're familiar with the English phrase. And then you may have the decision of translation. All right, do we put in, if I'm going to translate that to a Spanish speaker, do I say, un gato tiene su lingua? I know my accent was horrible on that. I'm not trying very hard. And they go, I don't believe a cat has eaten my tongue. No. Um, thank you for your concern. Gracias. Or do you say, are you having trouble coming up with words? You can't talk right now, can you? A little shocked? That's what we mean, right? It's an idiom. Okay, these aren't idioms. I'm just giving you some examples. So what had happened was, there are uh, six manuscripts, early manuscripts. Remember, hand copies. Just like we have copies of the Bible, hopefully there are some hundred copies of the Bible in here already. Uh, back in the 1600s, there was the adultery Bible. This is after the printing press. This is the adultery Bible. Because, uh-oh, left out a pretty important word in the Ten Commandments. Instead of shalt not commit adultery, they left out not. And it said, thou shalt commit adultery. That's not one of the top ten that you're supposed to do. We know that, right? But that was, a, that was a printing error. Even in the era of the printing press, they were making errors. Okay. Six manuscripts, handwritten, that say Jesus was filled with indignation. Indignation. Anger. Well, he, he's, he's been gotten from his prayer time by disciples that were hunting him. They say, what are you doing out here? Then this lepro, le, leprous man shows up, and Scripture says he's filled with indignation. Only six manuscripts, and they are of, they rate them, of medium importance. But when you're looking at manuscript evidence and you're trying to translate into English, you want to look, what do they all say? Well, the vast majority of them say compassion. So you would think, well, probably the original was compassion. 
Well, there's another technique. Some copyists would go, wow, that, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Maybe they meant some other word here, and they'd totally change it, just, just out of the blue. That, so when you come along with to uh, two different words in, in those copies, if one is the harder translation, like the, 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 it hurts more, that's usually the right one. That's, that's, what, that's the technique that they use. That's the standard. You're more likely to change the word to something that suits you better than something that suits you worse. All that to say, there's good indication. There's good reason to think Jesus at this moment was mad. He's, he's going to do it again. He gets angry. Anger is not a sin. Why? Why was he angry? It fits the tone, but why? We're going to talk about the anger actually a little bit later. But even if it's compassion, whether it's compassion, I should say, or indignation, we know he was compassionate because he healed the man. He wasn't angry at the man for interrupting him. He wasn't angry at a leper for not saying, unclean, unclean, and staying away from him. He wasn't angry because his day was interrupted. I think there's a much holier reason than any of those, obviously, because it's Jesus, for why he was angry. But I want to tell you all that because either translation works. If you read your footnote and you go, how would that work? Well, that's how it would work. But if he is angry or compassionate, the result was the same. Because uh, the fourth thing we see is that he had compassion for the unclean. He had indignation and compassion, and then that compassion shows up. But it, it's not just that he had compassion. People often have compassion for people that they're okay with. It's the people we're not okay with that we don't have compassion for. To have compassion for a leper back then was a real big stretch. Jesus had compassion, and we see it because he didn't just not pull away. He didn't just say, hey, you're supposed to say unclean, stay away from me. He didn't just go boy must be rough, he touched him. He put his hand on him. A man that probably had not been lovingly touched, well, ever since he got sick, however long that had been. He had never felt a comforting hand on his body. And Jesus touched him. Shoulder, hand, who knows? And by doing so, Jesus, in the eyes of everyone who would hear about it or could see it, made himself ceremonially unclean. At that moment, he could no longer go into the temple for however long until he had gone through all the rituals to uh, be cleansed again. He couldn't be around people because he might make them unclean as well. But you know what? Jesus didn't care much for ceremony. Nor did he care for man's interpretations of the law or anything that they would add to it in order to make it more difficult to break the law. Jesus cared about people first. He didn't break the law. He fulfilled the law. And then he said, something better than the law is now here. But he did say, you know what? If you're going to add tradition to the law, let me tell you how little I care about your tradition. 
because he had compassion. And really, you know, just a question we can ask, as God, was Jesus even affected by ceremonial law? Is that a thing he needed to worry about? Maybe not, probably, apparently not. But then, does it really matter? Because Jesus cleansed the man. The man didn't defile Jesus. What had the power here, leprosy or Jesus? Jesus. You know, it, it's, uh, I, I tried to think of some visual to come up with, to, to talk about this or make, and I, I, I can't do it. It's, it's you know, he, he, when, when he touched him, when a regular person would touch the leper, that person's cleanliness didn't go to the leper. The leper's uncleanness came to the person. That's how infection works. That's how you get other, you infect other people. Just because I'm healthy and I go around somebody with the flu doesn't mean that they suddenly don't have the flu. No, it's more likely I'm going to have the flu. It doesn't work that way with Jesus. Jesus, when he touched, it wasn't a from leper to him direction. It was from him to the leper direction. He cleansed the man. So Jesus wasn't defiled. He had like anti-defilement stuff on his hand. You know, that called God. And we've talked about, you know, Jesus temporarily, voluntarily laying aside the full use of his divine attributes when he became a man. He was protected. He was taken care of. We know he could get hurt. He probably got sick. But he didn't get leprosy because God was using him to cleanse, not be contaminated. He had compassion for the unclean. He touched the unclean. And then in verse 43, he rebukes before the fact. Again, we have this harsh language. He sternly warned him and sent him away. Okay, sternly and sent him away. This is the same language that Mark uses for exorcisms, for demons. The language, and, and, and you don't use this language for people that are, you're just, you're, you're calmly saying, okay, shh, and man, you go, go on your way. It was stern. It was don't say anything. And go somewhere else. Jesus not being nice? Yeah. Jesus being direct. Jesus being clear. I mean, you, you, you almost can envision, I can, you know, if, assuming the guy's still on his knees, you can almost look at me. Don't say a word. Now go to the priest. Do you hear me? So sometimes Jesus has to say that to me too. And he instructed this guy sternly, sent him away to go to the priest so he could get his life back. So he could be declared clean. Jesus knew he was healed. Jesus knew he was clean. He was cleansed. 
But he says, but you've, you've got things to do so they believe it, so they know it. Go and do those things, and don't tell other people. But he's doing this angrily, sternly, forcefully, fierce, uh, fiercely. So either in Jesus' divinity, God lets him know that the man is going to disobey, and he's already being tough with him to try to keep him from doing that, or in his humanity, he just merely suspects it. John, the Gospel of John says that Jesus knows what's in a man. He knows, he knows people. He knows this guy is going to want to tell everybody, wouldn't you? I have not been around society for I don't know how long because of my leprosy. I no longer have leprosy. What am I going to do? Just meekly walk through a marketplace? What's up? No, I'm good. No! He had been cleansed of his death. But Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And we finally see a disobedient recipient. He didn't do what he was told. He doesn't appear to go to the priest, because that would have required a trip to Jerusalem, 50 miles, round trip, 100 miles, plus seven days, is that what we read in Leviticus, of process, uh, of sacrifices. Doesn't appear he did that. He told everybody what happened. He went, let's see, what does it say? Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news. So don't think he just went and told a few of his friends uh, about, hey, guess what happened to me the other day? No, no, proclaimed it wildly, uh, widely, told everybody what had happened. Spread the news. Start spreading the news. I'm not leprous today. You know, he was letting everybody know what had happened. And we see at the end of the passage, we see it negatively affects Jesus' ministry. With the result, end of verse 45, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, the wilderness. All chapter 1 is about the wilderness. And they came to him from everywhere. Now, it doesn't say why he could no longer go into the cities or the towns openly, cities and towns openly. Mark doesn't tell us why on a lot of things. He just tells us what was. So here we are having to speculate again. Now, there's a small chance here that Jesus knew that he was considered unclean because of touching the leper, so he didn't go into the cities or towns until he had gone through purification rites and done the things that would allow him in society again. It's possible. Again, Mark does not say. It's more likely that he couldn't go because of the swarms of people. We see it in chapter 2. We're not going to be preaching on that. We'll be in chapter 3 next Sunday. But we see the house that they had to cut the hole in the roof uh, in to let the guy down. He, he went home. He basically snuck in. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, 
It was reported that he was at home. So he got in without anybody seeing him, he thought. Then it was reported he was home, so everybody showed up at his house. And there were so many people, they couldn't get in. Because that's what was happening every time he went into a city. They would just swarm him. So he spends time now in the wilderness. And these people are coming, not primarily to hear the message, but to find healings. I've got this, I've got that, will you heal me? He uses the opportunity to preach, because that's what he's here for, and he never turns away people that need to be healed. That's what we see. What do we learn? And this is, again, just kind of the, it's not normally the way I would preach a a, a passage. It's just the way we are, uh, we're having to do it uh, this morning. Uh, Let's see, there we go. What we learn. First, we learn Jesus had one purpose. To preach repentance. We go back to verse 14, because we didn't get there last week, and, and we've skipped it this week. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Verse 38 of chapter 1. And he said to them, let's go to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. Why did Jesus come? To preach the good news of repentance and salvation. And then to point to the cross that he was going to die on to provide that salvation. Jesus didn't come to heal. Jesus healed. Jesus still heals. That's not why he came. He came to preach repentance. We learn that Jesus had a good reputation. Now, it may not have been for the things that were most important, but he had a good reputation. He had a reputation of having the ability and the willingness to heal people. We're told in maybe Mark, but I know in other Gospels, that he never turned anybody away. They came to him and he turned no one away when they came for healing. He would heal late into the night. He would drop down from the roof. And, well, that's not a sermon illustration that I was going to use, but here we go. You know, he, he healed. People knew he both could and would help. The lepers here knew it. Others that came to him in the town of Capernaum, in the wilderness later, they knew it. Let me ask you, do we as believers, do you as believers have the same reputation? Are we known by being willing and able to help? Are we known as someone that people want to be around, not want to stay away from? We learn that Jesus, or rather that compassion and indignation both fit Jesus. We learn that when he cleanses the temple. We learn that when he uh, gets angry at demons. We we learn that here when he gets angry at uh, sickness. He has a love of people and a hatred of sin. He has compassion and indignation. He wants them to, us to be whole, but he knows what breaks us, what hurts us, and he hates that. He is indignant toward that. So indignant, he is indignant all the way to a cross. That's the fourth thing we learn 
is that Jesus had a willingness to get dirty, to get down into the, the thick of the muck, to get into the worst places, to, to eat with sinners and tax collectors, to touch the unclean. He's unconcerned about man's opinions. It doesn't matter what they think about him because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't matter to him what they think about him because he touches the unclean leper. It doesn't matter what they think about him. What matters is the one who needs the touch. And so he has compassion and a willingness to get dirty. Such a willingness that he gave up the glory of heaven to become one of us. We are not heavenly, nor are we glorious. He gave that up to put on flesh, to become incarnate. That's not a good trade-off. Especially when the result is not that you are automatically immune to pain and beatings and diseases and that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, you put on that flesh, you became incarnate so that you would suffer in the flesh. Even worse trade-off. I mean, if he had come like Superman or Captain America or something, all right, that would have been, you know, maybe not as horrible a deal, but he didn't. He just came like me like you, and all that goes with it except sin. He gave up all that so he could bear our sin and the punishment of God. Talk about getting in the filth. Every sin you commit, those things that you're hiding from your, 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 your spouse, your family, your parents... You're hiding from everyone. God knows. And Jesus knows. You know why? Because he suffered the weight of it. He suffered the punishment for it. He didn't do it, but he takes the punishment just like you would have to, but now won't if you trust him. You know why? Because number five, he's powerful to cleanse. We learned that about Jesus Leprosy in the Bible was always cleansed, not healed. Uh, it, it says here, you can make me clean. He told him, be made clean. Scholars debate whether he is actually talking about ceremonial cleanliness. No, and most of them come down on the fact, no, he, he's not. He, they discussed leprosy as being cleansed from it not healed from it. Keep that image in mind. Cleaned. Cleansed. Because what Jesus does for us on the cross, what he does for us when we believe in him for salvation, is he doesn't heal us of unrighteousness. He cleanses us from unrighteousness. 
It is not that we carry a disease that deforms us and therefore God looks at us and says, you are deformed, therefore you can't be around me. No, we carry the stench, the filth of our sinfulness and God says, I cannot be around that because you are not clean to be around me. I am holy and you are not. And Jesus says, you know what? I will take that unholiness, that filth, and I will put it on me though I don't deserve it, though I gave up my glory, though I gave up what I had, I will take that so that they can be clean in God's presence. God, uh, Jesus is powerful to cleanse. He's powerful to heal. But I would rather all of us go to heaven with no arms and no legs than go to hell fully formed. What's important is not our healing, but our cleansing. We learn that Jesus instructs for life, for the right now. His command to the leper to go and see the priests was so he could have his life back. Because until the priest declared him clean, everybody else would, okay, we see it, but what did the priest say? Because Leviticus says you got to go see the priest. Jesus instructs so he can have life again. Jesus, when we come to him for cleansing, instructs us so we can have life abundantly. Jesus, I don't like your rule. I don't like what you say I have to do. doesn't matter. Because if you follow, you will have abundant life life. If you obey, if you take up your cross, your method of execution, if you take this this pain, this burden, this yoke that I put on you, you will have abundant. How am I going to have abundant life wearing a cross on my shoulder, Jesus? Because Jesus isn't like us. Because Jesus doesn't work in our economy. God does things outside of what we think makes sense. And if we take Jesus on and we put on his instruction, we follow his instruction, we take up his cross and follow him, our cross and follow him, we get to have abundant life because Jesus gives instruction for life. Not just because he's willy-nilly wanting to, well, let's make him do this. Isn't that fun? Ha, look at that hoop they have to jump through. No. And finally, Jesus instructs for purpose. He instructs for our life that we can have abundant life, but he instructs for purpose. There is reason beyond even our abundant life that Jesus tells us to do things. He told the leper, don't tell people. The man probably thought it would be good to tell others, you're going to get a bigger crowd. That's what the disciples thought. Jesus, why are, you, why are you out here? The crowds are in there. This is why you're here, right, crowds? No. The man thought it was good. Jesus knew it wasn't. For whatever the reason, Mark doesn't tell us, but Jesus said, don't. We may think that our reasons for disobedience, well, I know the Bible says this. I know Paul said that. But today it can't. Look, folks, I have heard. I have heard it. I haven't heard it with my own ears. I've, I've read it. Let me, let me be clear of pastors getting up and preaching, turn the other cheek. 
and people in the congregation coming up to him afterward and saying, why are you preaching that liberal, woke business? You mean the words of Jesus? Why? Because right now they would say, no, we can't turn the other cheek. We've got to fight. There are bad things out there. We have to fight. And Jesus says, no, turn the other cheek. When you were weak, then you were strong. But Jesus, that doesn't make sense. I didn't ask you what you thought. I give instructions for purpose. We think our reasons for disobedience are better than his rules, but his rules are always for a purpose, and most often they're for reasons we can't comprehend and will probably never understand this side of heaven. And that is okay, because is the servant greater than the master? You should do this. And maybe even out loud, no. Because he's not. And when the master says, the servant does. Our hands, your purpose. Jesus has a message for you today. Repent and believe the good news of salvation. That's why he came. Jesus is able able to save you. He's got the reputation. Look around. There are people in this room that have been saved from all kinds and cleansed from all kinds of unrighteousness. He is able to do it. Jesus loves you and he hates your sin and what it does to you. Jesus is right here alongside of you right now. And he was last night and he was Friday night and he was the other day. And every time you were doing something... No matter what the filth you were trapped in was, he was with you right there, trying, waiting, waiting to pull you out. Waiting for you to say, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. And he can. He can cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He doesn't heal you of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do. I am the chief of sinners, Paul says. We all are. He doesn't heal us from sin. He cleanses us from sin. And he calls you to trust him, to follow him, and to obey him because he gives instructions for life, and he gives instructions for your good And for your eternity. Jesus in the filth. You know why I know Jesus is in the filth? Because he's been there with me in it too. He's been there beside me every time I blasphemed his name. I took his name in vain. Though I claimed to be a Christian, took the name of Christ My actions in no way represented him. He was right there with me every time. And he has never left me, and he never will. Jesus is in the filth with you. Will you follow him today out of that? Will you allow him to cleanse you? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. 
the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the gospel he came to preach. Will you believe in him for salvation today? You have a next step to take. Maybe it is to take up your cross, leave your life, follow him. Believe in him for salvation. Be baptized. Submit to him. Conform your life to him. Join our church. And you may have questions about this. We'd love to talk to you about that. We can do that today. We can do that after the service. If you'd like to, for us to pray with you, we can do that this morning. Maybe you want to come to the Next Steps class next Sunday morning and get a lot of these questions answered and ask some that we didn't think to answer. Talk to us during the week. Call the office. Message us online. Let us know what God is doing in your life. We're going to sing in a few minutes. Chelsea's going to be down out here on the front uh, to my left. I'm going to ask Justin to come down and stand here to my right. Two of our deacons will be in the back, Kirk and Lee. Any one of them would love to pray with you this morning. Maybe you just want to come up here to the front and give some things to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you've been in the filth of sin too long. He's with you, and he wants to pull you out of that, to cleanse you of that. It's when a hiker gets trapped down in a valley and they, they fall, they hurt themselves, they, they can't get out. The, the helicopter often will come and lower the stretcher down and somebody goes down with it and they, they pull it on the stretcher and pull them up. Those, those guys up there, they got an important job and I'm not diminishing that at all, but they're not down in it. It's not what Jesus does. He's not in the helicopter. As a matter of fact, there's not even a, I don't think there's a helicopter. I think he just climbs down in the mud with you, touches you and says, I will be cleansed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you sent your son that he was willing to give up everything to be one of us, to put on flesh, to be incarnate, to take our sin to make us clean, to join us in the filth and put his hand on us and say, I'm willing, be cleansed. Lord, may we approach you this morning. May we come to your throne not because we are willing, not because we can do anything to overcome our sin, but because Jesus did. We can come and say, Lord, I, I need you. And Jesus will pull us out of the mud, clean us off, stand with us before the Father and say, he's mine, she's mine. God, thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that while we are not healed of sin, we can overcome sin. We can be constantly sanctified. We can be better today than where we were yesterday. That you, you, you give us the grace and the mercy, the mercy to keep us going, the grace to give us the strength. And every morning is new. 
Lord, thank you for that. Be with those listening today. God, move on hearts. Someone will believe in Jesus for salvation today. That a believer will no longer wallow in shame in the mud, but will say, Jesus, I want out of here. And you are faithful to do it, Jesus. As we worship you today, we pray you'll work on hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.